Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today's episode is all about payers. Chris Hobson from Orion Health discusses CMS's upcoming deadline for interoperability requirements. Later, I speak with Geneva Slaybaugh from VISPA and Mike Duke from Baker Tilly about denials management. But first, let's hear what Rich and Chad are talking about when we go Beyond the News. Hello, this is Rich Daly, a senior writer and editor for HFMA. Hi, this is Chad Mulvaney, a policy director with HFMA. Thanks for joining us on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick look at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. So up this week, we're taking a look at Moody's recent analysis of the platforms and proposals of President Trump and Vice President Biden and projected financial effects. Among Biden's top line healthcare proposals are increased ACA marketplace subsidies to increase enrollment, automatically enrolling low-income individuals into premium-free coverage, establishing a public option, and lowering the Medicare eligibility age from 65 to 60 years old. Also included is new spending on the opioid crisis and rural health. His pay-fors include lower prescription drug prices through Medicare-negotiated prices and importation of cheaper drugs from overseas, as well as $14 billion from ending surprise medical bills. The 10-year cost of his proposal is just as healthcare changes was nearly $1.5 trillion. So what would you highlight among um, Biden's proposals for our listeners, Chad? You know, certainly I think increasing the marketplace subsidies and making them more affordable, because obviously, as we've seen through continuing enrollment reports, that families that aren't, don't qualify for subsidies certainly are, una- are increasingly unable to buy coverage in the exchange. So I think that would be a positive. I think also, you know, automatically enrolling low-income individuals into premium-free coverage would be good. You know, I think obviously establishing a public option is going to be challenging for providers. And it's going to be interesting to see kind of if they were to attempt to do that, certainly how they would go about doing it in a way that you could get enough stakeholders to sign on the plan to actually get it passed through Congress. And then my question becomes, well, what is the rate for that public option? And so if they were able to do something in that space, my guess it's gonna, is it's going to look more like sort of at least initially out of the chute what Washington State has tried where they have a public option participating in it isn't mandatory. And it's sort of, you know, it, it, it's not the strongest public option on the planet from, if you think about it kind of from a, from a cost control standpoint. Mm-hmm. And then increasing the Medicare eligibility age, I think that would be quite challenging for provider finances. Certainly, you know, there would be some positive lift it, to the extent that you picked up individuals that are Medicaid eligible in the 60 to 65 or 64 bracket and then sort of transition into Medicare that paid at a higher rate. But certainly, I think the overwhelming impact would be negative to the extent that you're taking people who are commercially covered and more likely to utilize high volumes of healthcare services compared to the rest of the commercial population and transitioning them to a, a, a lower paying payer. So you'd see a degradation in payer mix overall. I see. And then uh, in terms of Trump's healthcare proposals, these include giving Medicare beneficiaries with high deductible health plans the option to make tax deductible contributions to HSAs or MSAs. Uh, additionally, he proposes uh, opioid and mental health treatment expansions 
And his last budget also included a mention of a health reform vision, but uh, Moody's was unable to find enough details to analyze it. Uh, the pay fors uh, from Trump include reduced drug prices from ongoing reforms, cutting Medicare payments for graduate medical education, uncompensated care, bad debts, and hospital-owned physician offices. In addition, he would continue Medicaid disproportionate share hospital cuts and implement more work requirements. He also plans to end surprise medical bills and plans reforms to drug pricing and medical malpractice additionally would be considered. So among uh, Trump's proposals, what would you highlight there, Chad? Yeah, I, I think a lot of that would be incredibly challenging for providers because certainly you're one, you're cutting payments to for physician education at a time when we need more physicians. Uh, you are cutting uncompensated care and bed debt payments without actually sort of expanding the pool of coverage. So you're not only not covering more people, but you're reducing the the compensation to pr- providers who provide high volumes of indigent care. So, you know, you're really sort of fraying the safety net. And same thing with the Medicaid dish cuts. I think the other thing that I would anticipate, even though it wasn't in the Moody's plan, obviously, you know, the, the administration has been strongly encouraging states to take up block grants. So far, obviously, Tennessee has only sort of moved forward with one. But you might imagine that if the president was reelected to a second term, that more conservative states might consider that, which would certainly then sort of put more pressure on safety net providers potentially. So the last thing we wanted to touch base about was whether there are other health care policies that could stem from the election as well, given various possible combinations of control, of the two branches of the government that our listeners should should have on their radar. Yeah, you know, I think I'll go with sort of the things that have relatively high levels of bipartisan support. Um, certainly, you know, I don't think either party is necessarily against price transparency. So I think depending on what happens with the AHA court case, you could see potentially some reinvigoration of that if that were necessary through Congress. And then also, I think you would see a continued push towards alternative payment models as a way to manage the, the manage the total cost of care and improve quality particularly given just the impact or the the depletion of the Part A trust fund as a result of the pandemic as sort of, you know, we start to think about how we extend the life of the trust fund in absence of sort of the, the Part A tax revenue that you would have gotten over the past year. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, thank you very much for the insights again, Chad, on this uh, fast moving political and uh, health policy uh, issue. Yeah, no, happy. Always, always great to chat with you, Rich. Always happy to have a conversation. And of course, our listeners can keep up on the latest uh, developments in health policy and finance particular related to the election at our daily news site located at hfma.org forward slash news. Looking for a quick and easy way to fill open positions on your team? Post your open positions through HFMA's Job Bank, the niche recruiting site for healthcare finance professionals like you. List your open positions today at hfma.org slash job bank. The January 2021 deadline for the first stage of CMS interoperability requirements for payers is fast approaching. CMS has said they won't enforce the rules until July, but hopefully no one has waited until now to start planning. Chris Hobson, Chief Medical Officer at Orion Health, talked with me recently about how to undertake financial preparations for this first phase. There's a few things that people need to do 
in terms of planning for the big days, providers should have already understood where they're going, what they need to do in terms of some kind of high-level strategy. So you have some funding and you have some resources and people to work on things that you've thought through some of the things like the technical architecture and how you're going to be compliant. If you reach January 2021 and you haven't been able to take a, you know, a big picture, careful, thought through approach, the absolute minimum last minute thinking would focus just on getting these two, two or three application programming interfaces, the APIs. So if you have to do nothing else on January 1 and you have to start quickly, look at the technical requirements that you need to meet in terms of putting together the fire APIs for patient access, for a provider directory, and then later for a payer-to-payer data exchange. So you'd have to start with the technology on 1-1-2021. The second stage of these rules takes effect in July. So you definitely don't want to wait until July to think about the first stage because you've got to prepare for the second. So tell me a little bit about the second stage and how to prepare for that. First piece, which is, includes the patient access API and the provider directory API, scheduled for January 1, but now will be July. The next piece that matters, so those are payer requirements. Payers must deliver those APIs on those dates. The next date that the payers need to worry about, currently it's sitting at January 1, 2022, and it's the payer-to-payer data exchange. Again, so CMS have said that they expect or recommend that payers exchange data in the format that they have it with preference for FHIR APIs. So again, you need to be able to understand all of your data and then find your way to exchange that with any other payer. And the most straightforward is via a FHIR API. In terms of things they should be thinking about at this point, is the new characteristics compared to the January 2021. So where we're rapidly heading with the payers, as well as the FHIR API, they need to be thinking about a requirement to exchange the entire record. So the US CDI is the standard. It's a simple standard, you know, labs, meds, encounters, um, patient demographics that kind of data, very clearly specified, that's what's needed in that first stage, kind of 1A or 1B stage, you have to be able to exchange data with other payers in the format that it was given to you. Stage three will be you have to exchange all of the data, all of the clinical data that you hold. What we're talking about here is a process that's going to take some time and it's going to be stretched out over a long period of time. But we are recording this on October 13th, 2020. Confirmation hearings are going on right now for Amy Coney Barrett, the likely next Supreme Court justice. Um, Election day is a couple weeks away. This could all change. So how do you balance the preparedness and the watching to see what happens? And what are some of the risks to the timelines that we've discussed? As we were just discussing, we can look at the technology in each of the steps and hoping to last minute kind of meet those technical requirements, a better approach is to step back and see this genuinely as part of a a strategy for where CMS and ONC are trying to drive the health system. So 
So again, these are a set of requirements. However, once you can do some of these things, you will empower patients. Patients may become more demanding. It will cost time and money, as you said, to implement all of these things. CMS are looking for us to do this on an ongoing, long-term basis. I would have said the timelines are pretty realistic, but I think we have to be aware, as you say, today, October 13, we're looking at quite a resurgence in COVID-19 cases. And certainly for the providers, it's pretty unrealistic to expect them to do much else than cope with the COVID-19 resurgence. Payers, in terms of COVID-19, the payers have generally done done okay because there's actually fewer, smaller volume of elective surgery in the hospitals. The payers are not spending as much as they were. So I don't think that COVID-19 will actually deflect these dates much or any. But then the other kind of thing that you have to think about right now, and that's potential political uncertainty, and in particular, the possibility that the Affordable Care Act will actually be rejected by the Supreme Court. That hearing is November 10, 2020, and we'll hear the outcome of that sometime later. It really is a black swan event. I would like to believe that the processes and things that CMS are asking for here are common sense, that they make really do start to make a healthcare information highway possible. The APIs are a much better method for exchanging data than anything we've had before. So I'm hopeful that but, you know, I certainly don't want to see the end of the ACA. But if it does happen, my betting is that these rules will still continue. I actually think that they'll be fairly resistant to political pressure and change because they're so well specified and because they so look like the right thing that we should all be doing anyway. So fingers crossed. How do you benchmark your revenue cycle performance? Many organizations measure success compared to past performance. Others leverage software to benchmark against other facilities that share the same technology. But that only paints part of the picture. What about comparing your performance to your peers? Peers that you define in custom peer groups. MapApp is the online benchmarking tool from HFMA that helps organizations compare their performance against data from more than 600 facilities. Interested in taking the next steps to identify your revenue cycle opportunities? Visit hfma.org forward slash map app. One of the biggest issues I hear about from members on a regular basis is denials management. And I recently read a statistic from America's health insurance plan saying one in seven claims is denied. So if your organization is looking for strategies for better communication with payers, You'll want to hear this interview with Geneva Slabaugh, CEO of VISPA, and Mike Duke, Principal with Baker Tilly. We talk a lot at HFMA about the patient financial conversation because we feel that it's a crucial part of healthcare, making patients, uh, making sure that patients understand what they owe, why they owe it. But I'd like to talk with you about the payer financial conversation, which seems like a big challenge for many organizations. Why do you think that is? And what's at risk when they get it wrong? 
the issues with payer conversations are, in my opinion, you know, multifaceted. The, the first is the, the vehicles in which you have to contact them. So there's portals, there's obviously phone, there's some other mechanisms, but um, the timeliness of those interactions are problematic unless it's a portal. The problem with the portals is sometimes they're not informative enough. And so you're left with what I consider half conversations in most, most regards where they either can't get the information I need nor convey the information I need to, or, or I can't make contact at all in a timely manner. And so that I, I end up punting on that conversation and moving on to the next one, hoping that I can catch it later when I can make the contact that's necessary. So I think the, the vehicles in which you communicate are problematic, but each payer is also different. And so how I contact payer A versus how I'm required to contact payer B can be completely different. And then on top of that, some of the uh, more government-related payers, their vehicles may be only, and, and I'm speaking specifically around states, they sometimes prohibit certain days and or times to have that communication occur. And so that trying to schedule those things and have the problem of, of how I go about it and what information I can and cannot get or, or can and cannot convey makes those conversations unique and causes several issues. And therefore, there's a lot of missing information both ways that then results in either non-payments or um, um, non-authorizations, eligibility checks that are incomplete, and all those things that have to happen to function from the financial standpoint, the administrative side standpoint of those communications becomes um, a bit of a problem. Um, some of the things I think leaders can do is they, they do have the capability, of which they don't avail themselves as much as I think they should, of having the dialogue with leadership here at the payer organization and say, look, we're just trying to do what you required us to do. How can we facilitate that or make that easier so that both of us don't have administrative follow-up tasks that, that take time and money to complete and, and build that procedure a little bit tighter? What I think we tend to do, at least on the provider side where I live, is the payer will tell us how things can occur, and we generally just say, I've got to deal with that, as opposed to engaging uh, up here at the, or, at, the, at the payer organization. So, you know what, that causes a lot of problems for us. We don't get to do the things we need to do. That causes more administrative uh, work on your end that kicks back administrative work on our end, and it's just problematic. So I, I think having that conversation Building a rapport, regular calls, regular meetings with peer leadership, I think is important and doesn't occur as often as it should. On the staff side, unfortunately, they're only given the tools that they're given and they only have the tools to deal with that they're given. And, and another thing that I find a lot is they'll just suffer through it. And so if I've got to sit on the phone for 25 minutes, that's what I do. That's my job. Where I think if there was a little bit tighter communication between leadership teams and the staff, you could build a, a kind of a common library of issues and try to resolve those either with smarter tools on the provider side, um, things like a uh, automated dialers that are outbound and have some learning capability that would say, you know what, when I call payer A all the time, I'm averaging 12.5 minutes a call and let that sit and tick away until roughly that time frame, and then it could kick back that call to the rep. That would save them some time and assist in those communication things. But that's only going to happen if the staff inform the leadership. And in my opinion, it's the leadership's of responsibility to monitor what's going on in the staff's 
daily life, if you will, so that they can start packaging those up and understand this happens a hundred times a day, as opposed to just the one person that, that gets a little frustrated and, and it's a squeaky wheel, if you, if you will, that uh, presents things that are problematic, but it, it may only happen once a month. If there was more collaboration and conversation between the leaders and provider organizations with payers, where they would even be coming to them with specific examples, you know, from the staffers saying, hey, this payer over here, we're spending this amount of time and with you, we're spending X amount of time. And so I'm thinking even having like analytics to back up, you know, because those don't lie. And I think it is in the interests of everybody, patient, provider, and payer to resolve claims as quickly and efficiently as possible. And so I think anything that leaders can do to engage in those conversations and having it be collaborative, I think, you know, anytime we can get a a buy-in to work things from two different directions, it just benefits everybody the whole way around. They also discussed the importance of tracking not only results, but actions and checking periodically to see what's working and what's not. I'm a big proponent of continual monitoring of a lot of things. So, I, I mean, it's if, if you have a very rudimentary and, and manual way to, to track it, then no, you can't do it every month, every day. But you should at least test it quarterly to make sure that you're, are you making improvements because it doesn't make any sense to, to have the conversation when you think you've come up with a solution and you drop from my, you know, my fictitious example of 34 minutes to 32 minutes. That's not really a win. Um, that's more of an average anomaly. So the... The thing is, it is important to measure regularly, and the more in an automated fashion you can do that, the better you off you are, um, because then you can have continual feedback to the payer teams that you're in discussions with about changes and, and okay, that didn't work, let's try something else, or that works great, um, now let's apply it over here. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and is written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. We always welcome your feedback, so if you'd like to reach out, please do so at podcast at hfma.org. We're going to try this again from the top.